Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Demp here, thanks again for joining us wherever you may be in the world. Let me ask you a question. How do you think you get better at something? Or even better yet, there is something you want to get better at. You've probably wanted to be better for years or decades and never have. Why not? Now, I'm sure you're thinking, well, duh, it's practice or experience or just doing it. Perhaps it's learning about it. Well, I think we all kind of know the idea behind it, but A, we don't know the specifics, and B, if we knew it, why aren't we better at that thing? So this week, we get to interview a guy that just I've long heard about. I've read his work in a couple of my favorite books, actually, such as Moonwalking with Einstein, The Talent Code, Quiet, and of course, Outliers. This week, we are speaking with Anders Ericsson. And essentially, Anders is the guy whose research led to the quote-unquote 10,000-hour rule. You know, the idea that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert? Well, here's the thing. That's kind of not really true. Let me give you a great example. I'm 33 years old. No, wait. 32. I don't know. Once you get in your 30s, it doesn't matter. But that's not the point. I've been playing golf since I was about 12 years old, and I play as much as I can. I'm pretty good. However, I should be a lot better. 
I'm not saying I've put in 10,000 hours, but I've put in damn near close to that. And let me tell you, I'm a long ways from being an expert. So what does Anders have to say? Well, his new book is called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And for more than 30 years, Anders, who is a psychologist by trade, has studied the people who stand out as specialists in their field. And in his book and this interview, we essentially figure out what is it that makes them great. Where did this 10,000 hour rule come from if he's the one that did the research and even he doesn't quite agree with what Malcolm Gladwell said? So I can't wait to get into this. The, the craziest part of talking to him is I realized he essentially is telling you how to become great at something. And it's doable. And so all of a sudden I was going, what do I want to become great at? And do I have the willpower? So I hope you will do the same as we listen to this interview with Anders Ericsson as we discuss his book, Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Also, Anders is the Conradi Eminent Scholar of Psychology at Florida State University and has been the driving force behind the development of the field of expert performance. Okay, so other than that, what's going on, guys? Have you been telling friends about the show? Have you sent an email or a tweet to, to them or your family or us for that matter? It'd be really cool if you did. And on that note, if you're not following us on Twitter, you're going to miss out on a pretty cool giveaway that we're going to do probably just a few days after this episode airs. We are going to be giving away three beautiful hardcover copies of Anders' book, Peak, The Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. I knew this was one that the community would like, so I specifically asked the publisher to send us a couple extras that we could give away. So follow us on Twitter, and hopefully you'll catch the details on how to win a book. And lastly, guys, you've probably seen the emails and even attended one of the webinars we've held recently, and we are definitely going to keep that train rolling because it is a lot of fun. It's so crazy to ask these experts questions and get people involved. If you want to be sure to never miss out on a webinar with an expert and to have access to the replays, check out mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com. And if you have any questions, go ahead and shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. All right, going to get into this week's episode with Anders Ericsson as we discuss the science of expertise. Enjoy. Well, Anders, I have to say, it's always a blast talking to people, but I am extremely excited to have you on. I've been waiting for this one, and I'm well aware of you know what you do, your research, and your work. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Well, I, I'm just enjoying talking to you so very much, and, and I'm really looking forward to uh, you know the, the, our interaction here. Where I want to start is interesting, because... You are kind of, you have been coined, and correct me if I'm wrong, as the father of or the inventor of the 10,000 hour rule. And, you know, people might not know who you are, but I can almost guarantee you everyone listening knows about that rule or at least has heard of it. So let's, let's start from there. Is it true that you came up with it and um, how did you do so and, and what is it? Let's start there. Right. And, and, and actually it turns out that Malcolm Gladwell is actually the one who came up with the 10,000 hour rule. And, and he based it on our research where he uh, interpreted our findings to say that 
you know, the best individuals in our group and, and also in other domains, you know, seem to have spent about 10,000 hours before they, you know, reach the very highest levels. Now, he kind of viewed that as something kind of magical where, you know, you just had to spend a, a tremendous amount of time in order to really reach the highest levels. So, so that general rule that in order to really reach, you know, the top in any kind of uh, discipline, it seems that people actually have invested a long time. I mean, there's really nobody who kind of discovers that they are gifted and then just basically perform at the highest levels. But I think what uh, is kind of confusing and what I heard many people interpret Malcolm Gladwell's rule to say is, if I just keep doing what I'm doing for 10,000 hours, I'm going to actually become an expert. And that's actually very different from what we found. Uh, we were looking at uh, elite uh, violinists at a music academy and, and basically found that when we actually tracked how much they have trained by themselves uh, while basically being now instructed by professional music teachers, that the average of the elite group when they were 20 actually ended up being an average over 10,000 hours. But there was a lot of variability. So it wasn't, you know, like magically you were kind of getting to this uh, elite level by just having practiced that much. And maybe what's kind of more important, what we found is that if you really look at those who are winning international piano competitions, they kind of do that at age 32. So that's like 12 years after age 20. And we estimate that they probably have put in around 25,000 hours of individual practice, uh, mostly supervised here by master teachers and other types of teachers. Wow. I was just thinking about that. It's like, so I'm a golfer and I, I play golf a lot and I see I've tended to continue to get better. But then I see like my dad, right? He's 64 or something like that. He's probably shot the same score for the past 20 years. And you wonder, how can you not get better? But essentially, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the crux of your work is like you can't just keep doing what you're doing. Right. If you keep doing what you're doing, that's what you're going to be doing. Uh, <laughs> you know, and if you think about driving or all sorts of other kinds of activities that you do, uh, and I don't think anybody really views people who are age 50, 55 here as expert drivers. Um, mm. and, and I guess the, the, I think the main insight is that if you want to change, you actually need to do something different than just keep doing what you're doing. And, and what we kind of introduced was this concept of purposeful practice, where ideally you have a teacher who has trained people previously who can take a look at what is it that you're doing and then basically identify some aspect that you can actually change. But the way you change it is not you know, just thinking about it, but actually designing a training situation where you can actually gradually sort of push yourself to uh, a higher level of performance on that aspect, and then you integrate that into your current performance. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess just to kind of give an example here of, which is one of my favorite ones, if you say play doubles in tennis, and then you miss a backhand volley, uh, you know, the game is gonna go on. And maybe you encounter exactly the same situation 
uh, an hour later, are you going to be able to do a lot better? No. So the way you can actually improve your performance in that situation would be to work with a tennis coach who can basically see where you're at uh, with your backhand volley and, and then start out giving you easy shots. And then as you're mastering those where you're ready for them, uh, then basically he will make it harder for you. And then eventually you may have to run up to the net. And then maybe towards the end here, he will be able to integrate it. So you're rallying and he would force you now to basically execute your backhand volley. And the argument is that if you spend a couple of hours with a tennis coach, you probably will improve your backhand volley more than you might over years or even decades of just sort of playing without that opportunity of actually trying to correct and change uh, some particular part of your game. I, I, you know, my listeners know this, but there are certain times in certain interviews that I get goosebumps and, and I, I, they're like, my body is riddled with them right now. And here's why I, so I want to be great at so many things. I don't know why it's just how I was born. And I, I think to my detriment because, um, I spread myself too thin. But for people like myself, or really so many people who just want to excel, I think the way I'm interpreting it is you're saying you most likely can excel and become really actually great at things if you just use the proper process, which is find a coach, deliberate practice, come up with training, put in your time, hard work, etc. Is that is, is that an oversimplification? Well... I would say two things. Based on our kind of real research, uh, where we looked at people who reached the highest levels, we can actually find that trajectory, this incremental path by which they gradually got to that point, which you know really sort of strongly supports this view that anybody can do it. But there's also a new emerging body of evidence that probably hasn't been as controlled, like individuals who decide that they want to improve something. You know, uh, we talk about in the book here about somebody who wanted to learn how to sing. And, and now after two, three years, uh, is actually done recordings and is now able to professionally sing. And this was somebody in their 30s who, you know, was a psychotherapist. Uh, other people are taking courses in drawing and it, what's amazing is that after two, four hundred hours of this kind of focused training, you know, they're actually producing wonderful things, you know, things that you could actually give as gifts to your friends. And I think and, and I really would argue that I don't know of really any evidence that we know of that would actually limit somebody from reaching that uh, high level of performance with the support of a teacher and you know, the known uh, training techniques. The only, the only exception, you know, is body size. We don't know of anything that can actually, you know, make you taller. Uh, so if you want to be a center in NBA, you know, uh, then basically you should worry about your height because you're not going to be able to sort of change that. It's a great point, and it's one that I know often gets brought up in this debate. It's like, well, wait, a lot of it is kind of the your physical being you know and i think kind of what you just said is yeah in some obvious instances like you 
if you're five five, you can't play basketball. If you're a hundred pounds, you probably can't play football. Like when it comes to sports and things like that. But you know, it, it reminds me of this study that I heard one time, and it was how much more likely you are if you you are to become a professional athlete if your one of your parents was a professional athlete, and then there was a debate over, is that because of genetics, you know, and oftentimes people were like, well, it's in the genes, it's in the, but the study found that really it was access to knowledge and resources that uh, is primarily the reason that that is the case. Would you, would you agree with that? Have you ever heard of that? Does that make sense? Uh, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And, and I think there's a pretty uh, solid body of work here showing that an early start, and when we're talking early, you know, it's really starting at an age when children really don't have the ability here to kind of really start training. So unless your parents are really either themselves because they have a professional background in sports or music or whatever, you know, then they can actually be your own uh, teacher uh, or they can basically put you in contact here with an appropriate teacher and it seems that basically that early start will give you sort of a comparable advantage, uh, which really has nothing to do with genes, but more to do basically with the fact that an early start, uh, you're going to be able to acquire the correct fundamentals. Because that's one of the things that people have found, which I find very interesting. If you acquire things by yourself, uh, you tend to acquire bad habits. And those bad habits actually end up being, you know, a real problem for people who want to advance. So it's almost like they have to undo the habits that they've acquired in order to acquire the right fundamentals, sort of like a double whammy. And so, so there's a lot of advantages with an early start that leads me to believe that, you know, uh, maybe the early start here and having that access to good teachers and also, the motivational support, and sometimes, you know, there's, you know, you have to be driven here to training, uh, uh, basically, uh, environments and stuff, and tr be driven to competitions. So, parents actually play a tremendous role here in providing access in, in many types of sporting events. I think I just heard a collective gasp, almost, as people around the world just thought, Oh my gosh, like I have to start my child off on this right away. So as we've already seen, I mean, my wife's a kindergarten teacher and no longer do they say, Hey, if the kid leaves kindergarten knowing what words are or how to, how to read a little bit, then that's great. They now say, if they don't leave reading at a third grade level, you did not do your job. And so the pressure is really mounting on kids. And we're seeing that in a, in a lot of, you know, we're seeing a lot of negative repercussions from that. So it's almost scary to hear. Yeah, but the the thing is, I mean, the earlier you start them, the better they're going to be. And and so you might have those hovering parents that take that too far. Right. And, and, and I think that once you start thinking about, you know, the fact that your children, you know, you're trying to help them become very successful adults. And once you start thinking about it in that term, I think the way that you help the child, you know, really enjoy what they're doing. And I think I've seen many examples here, and I think people have, you know, commented on the fact that music prodigies 
typically don't, you know, they reach kind of the teenage years, but they don't make that transition to independent musicians that really kind of make a unique contribution. And one of the arguments is that, that these children have not been helped to be independent. So I would argue that the key, if you parent, would be to actually help the child become in control over the training. And then the child also will figure out <clears throat> that if they can concentrate 100%, they're going to make a lot more training advances than if you actually force them to do it for hours. And, and I, I, I guess the number that I've heard when you first introduce a child or even an adult beginner, 15 to 30 minutes is about the amount of time that you can actually engage in deliberate practice where you're really trying to change something. So you're not just performing, you're actually pushing yourself to go beyond what you currently can do. This week's episode is brought to you by the awesome folks over at Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It helps connect people with information they need to do their best work. We all struggle with productivity. We're constantly under pressure to accomplish more and to do it faster. There's no one definitive way to accomplish that, so we devise our own methods to make things work. Usually these things don't work though, so Igloo is here and can help you do things your way only better. Collaboration shouldn't be painful. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Chris and I used it for Smart People Podcast, and it's been a blessing. You can do blogs, calendars, file sharing. You can create a forum for your employees to use. You can have a social news feed, create wikis, you name it. Igloo can do it, and it will help you do your work better. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. And now back to the episode. That makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad we covered that because, you know, growing up an athlete, I've seen that. I've seen the dad, you know, at a, at a six-year-old's game screaming at umpires and, like, yelling at their kid. And everybody's seen that. I'm actually worried I might be that. I have a one-year-old. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear to kind of start a little slower. One thing I wanted to ask was, how much of it is dependent on enjoying the activity itself? And I know that might sound like a stupid question, but the reason, like, you know, parents oftentimes, I think, want to, they say, my kid's going to want to be an athlete. Um, you know, I can kind of see it. And so they cram them into this box. And my assumption is, if you force that on them and say, look, you'll be great if you just put in this time without them having the the, the pure joy of it, there's no way they're going to put in that deliberate practice, which is actually not that much fun. Right. And, and, and I think basically that full concentration is something that you can't really push individuals uh, to do. And so if you are a parent and actually were able to think about how you can actually create uh, a situation here where the child is actually prodding you for, you know, doing uh, training and, and in more in control here about for how long and basically what are the aspects that they want to work on. And, and especially as they get older, I think that transition where they actually start, you know, thinking about their training and coming up with 
ways in which they actually can implement now what the teacher has uh, told them to work on. That's when you're generating both the joy of being able to perform, uh, and, and that is kind of the foundation here for somebody who has a good prognosis to be successful when you get to the you know, adult level. Sure. Well, let's talk about, and, and I can hear my listeners basically saying, Chris, get into the specific ways I can get better at something. And I'm, we're going to do that. But, and that's your book, Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, came out two days ago as of this recording, April 5th. I mean, you, you take all the secrets and you put it in there, but we will cover that. I want to go back a little bit and first talk about how did you get to this research? Like, where did it all start? I know you're a psychology professor, but tell me about your background a little bit. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Sweden and, uh, and I think, you know, pretty early on, I was really interested in thinking and, and, uh, and I kind of remember, uh, I made this contract with myself, uh, in high school that, you know, I shouldn't memorize uh, a lot of things because I felt that just seemed to be a waste of my time. So what I did do, and, and history is a good example, where if you read two or three books about the historical period that you're really trying to memorize facts, I ended up being able now to kind of learn the material in a more meaningful way uh, uh, compared to many of my classmates who just sort of sat down and memorized it. And I think that that kind of meaningful encoding of, of really trying to learn things and relate it to what you already know, I found to be really interesting. So <clears throat> from the very beginning, uh, when I did my PhD, I was interested in coming up with methods so you could follow how people were thinking. And, and I guess the idea was, if I could understand here how people I really admired was thinking, you know, then I could improve my own thinking. So the method that I ended up with was this thinking aloud method, which uh, people had previously uh, uh, done research on. And I kind of studied problem solving but then I got the possibility of working as a postdoc in the United States. And that's kind of really where <clears throat> the research kind of started, uh, where we were really looking at what is it that training can do here in terms of changing memory ability? And, and to what extent are you really born with general memory capacities that really limit the things that you can do if you try to be good in other domains? So it, did it start in that field of kind of memory, uh, you know, things like that? I mean, I know I read Moonwalking with Einstein, one of my favorite books, primarily, I think, twofold. One, because it, it really proves that anyone can can excel at something, and also because of the way that book was written, just really great. But um, did you start in the memory field? Well, at the time when I came to the States, uh, people believed that short-term memory was a limiting factor and that there were individual differences in short-term memory that really determine your ability to succeed in all sorts of domains. Uh, so we, Bill Chase and I, we decided to kind of try to find somebody who was willing to basically practice for an extended period of time to follow up on some early research that suggested that you could improve short-term memory by a couple of items. And typically the way you measure short-term memory at that time 
was by reading digits to people and then seeing how many digits could you recall perfectly uh, of a list of a given length. And it ends up, you know, that people's average is around seven digits, uh, which is, you know, like a phone number. But the question was, you know, how much could you improve that? And here's, I guess, one idea that I think, you know, cuts across all our research is that in order to improve your memory, you shouldn't just do more or try harder doing what you're doing. Uh, because what most people do in this task, when you're reading them numbers, is to kind of rehearse them to themselves. And often, you know, when you get a phone number and you're going to dial it, uh, basically you rehearse it. And then when you keyed it in, you can kind of forget about it. So how much could you actually improve that memory if you had training? And we looked at mathematicians and other individuals who are working with did, uh, numbers all the time, and their ability was limited to less than 20 digits that they could actually reproduce uh, incorrectly in, in order. So the question then is, you know, would this college student be able to actually improve and become as good here as mathematicians and other professional in mathematics. And what we found was that actually he ended up discovering a new way of doing that task. Instead of rehearsing, he actually grouped digits, and, and I think it's very well described in Josh Fowler's book, you know, to form meaningful connections now to those numbers. And then he could store them in long-term memory and gradually, with practice, he could do a number of these groups, and eventually, around 20 of these groups, he kind of store in long-term memory, so at the end of the presentation list, he could go back and then recall it, so he was allowed to do about 80 digits uh, using that method. But the key idea is, one, this is a specific skill that supports memory for digits, because it didn't transfer to letters. But it shows that if you pick a domain, you can actually vastly increase your performance by using long-term memory and relying on meaningful encodings. And we see that that's true for all types of experts, that they develop this ability here to meaningfully represent the current situations. And instead of just relying on short-term memory, they're able to put it sort of in long-term memory so it's accessible and can really support their performance. Sure. And so how did that translate in? I'm really interested in, you know, uh, the mental aspect, right? The, the, what you're talking about is really mental exercises, practice, et cetera, to I know oftentimes violinists or chess champions um, that, well, chess a little differently because that's extremely mental, but, but let's talk violinists. You started looking at them, which then translated to many athletes which, you know, so there's a difference because you have the mental aspect, how much can you remember? And then you have the physical aspect, like to how to hit a golf ball perfectly all the time. And that seems to be where this idea of uh, deliberate practice came from. What was that transition like? And did you see any differences from the mental to the physical? Well, I, I think what we found was that the mental is actually critical, even in the physical activities. So for a musician, you know, to play a piece, if you're a skilled musician, you can actually image what you want the piece to sound like when you're playing it. 
then you have a mental representation that allows you to translate what you're trying to do to basically what your fingers are going to be doing. And then you have the ability to listen to what it sounds like as when you're playing it. And you can compare what you were actually sounding like with what you your goal for what you wanted the piece to eventually sound like, because obviously as you're acquiring it for a public performance, you're, you, you still are working on ways to uh, improve aspects. And the same thing is true for athletes. When they practice, it's more a matter of attaining more control over what you're doing. So if you see a expert golfer practice, every time when they hit a shot, they actually have an image of what they're trying to do. And then they can actually compare the actual outcome with basically what they did. And they're not trying to do the same thing, you know, just hundreds of times, but they're actually systematically varying the shot from the next shot in order to really demonstrate that you can actually control the shot that you're producing. And you get feedback about your ability to control it by comparing what you were trying to do and what actually happened. Hence the reason why I'm not a professional golfer, because that makes a lot of sense. And I, I man, I really, I just, I love that. So how, how would you recommend uh, anyone train the mental aspect, given that, let's say that we're trying to improve, I mean, so many different things in life. And I want to ask about the, the business world, really, or, you know, just our lives. What's the first step in getting your mind up to speed so that your body or your actions can follow? Well, again, I would sort of, if you do have a teacher or maybe somebody that is actually demonstrating a very high objective performance at something, to kind of approach that person to kind of now get feedback and help. And maybe even just seeing what that person is doing uh, and, and what in our research we were doing was actually trying to describe the developmental history. How did this person get to be able to do what they're doing? Now, once you get information about that, it becomes now easier to see what the difference is between your developmental history and this expert's developmental history. Now, sometimes, you know, you maybe want to aim here to be the best in the world, but I think in so many professions, if you could just feel like you're doing a better job, especially if you're a doctor, so you can actually help your patients getting better, I think that, you know, that feeling that you're actually doing a better job than you used to is a real kind of source of motivation. And then seeing patients who are, you know, really grateful for the efforts that you did that helped them. So I guess the point is, in order to go from where you are, you need to find a reference point to somebody who's actually doing the performance in a way that you would like yourself to do it. And, and obviously, sometimes maybe you're the only one doing it, and then you're kind of at the point where many of the pioneers who basically had reached the highest level that was available at that time, who now started to figure out and just 
trial and error, you know, work on finding training techniques that could actually bring their performance at, at an even higher level. And then they can actually share those insights about training uh, and that allows other people to more effectively, you know, reach uh, a higher level of performance. Sure. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of a lot of people may have heard phrases like, you know, practice doesn't make perfect, but perfect practice makes perfect. And so what I'm even I've heard that. And what I'm wondering is, you know, I still do not excel at many of the things I wish I did. And I'm saying I'm using myself as a reference, but I'm sure there are people listening saying, yeah, me too, even though they kind of know the steps. What do you find is the biggest hindrance to people taking what you're telling them, saying, look, here's how to do it, essentially, and you can be slightly better, you can be great, whatever you aim for, and kind of what you just mentioned, even a little bit better is going to change your outlook and your world and your environment. Uh, what is the hindrance to us doing that? Have you, have you done any research on that or any ideas there? Well, you know, I, I think what we find is, uh, especially with golfers, you know, I think any golfer would be able to work with a golf coach who might actually give them training activities that they can do at the putting green or the driving range. Now, most people who play golf, uh, you know, wonder whether that is something they want to do. And, and I believe that you need the motivation. Uh, so if you don't have the motivation here of wanting to become better, then probably just keep doing what you're doing. But if you do want to get better, then you're actually going to have to make that decision. Am I willing to basically put in that time? And, and I believe that if you do the practice right, it's not as aversive as most people think. And, and I think the mistake that people do is that they kind of almost like if you want to run a marathon, you know, go out and run for two, three hours, and then you're just totally wasted and, mm. and you more or less never pursue it. But if you have the guidance of a teacher, that teacher would be able to tell you what is the gradual steps and let's make a plan here for what you need to do in order to be able to build up the uh, the, the the stamina uh, so you can complete a marathon and and maybe if you're even more kind of you know pinpointed time that you would be you know looking at as a sort of a goal that would go beyond just completing the marathon let me introduce you to our sponsor connected camps an online minecraft camp for kids connected camps was started by three girl geeks on a mission to make coding and digital arts accessible and fun for all This summer, Connected Camps is offering Summer of Minecraft Camp for Kids. Kids can learn all about Minecraft, from coding and architecture to in-game engineering and game design. Camps are all online and can be done from home in a safe and dedicated Minecraft server. That means kids play and learn in a secure, monitored environment. They'll also be taught by experienced counselors. By far, one of the coolest things about Connected Camps is a safe online environment that promotes digital citizenship and teaches kids the importance of collaboration and community organizing. Each week-long camp regularly costs $139, but right now they are offering early bird specials for just $99 if you register before the end of the month. On top of that, sign up now with our promo code SMART25 
to receive an additional 25% off the Summer of Minecraft Camp Early Bird Special. Listen up. Learn more and sign up at ConnectedCamps.com and Connected Camps will give you an additional 25% off if you enter our coupon code SMART25 at checkout. That's ConnectedCamps.com and enter SMART25 at checkout to get 25% off your purchase and to show your support for Smart People Podcast. And now back to the show. I think that's a really key thing. And I want to pause and and just kind of repeat that and, and make sure I heard it right because it's basically oftentimes people get excited about something. They say, okay, I know I need to get better. I know how to get better. I'm going to go do it. And so let's use, um, say, golf. They go to the putting green for three hours and they putt, they putt, they putt. And it's really not that much fun. And then next time they're going, okay, time to go to the putting green. They're less excited because they remember the last time they spent three hours there. Where instead, if they would just go take one drill, do it for 20 minutes, they might continue that. And then over time, that 20 becomes 30, becomes 40, becomes an hour as you start to see your score drop. Does that make sense? I I think that makes perfect sense. And I think that the backdrop here of seeing that the golfers may have spent you know, thousands of hours perfecting their putting. That gives you a little bit of a perspective. And once you think about all the nerve cells and muscles and other things that are actually being adapting as you're, you know, increasing the control and the reproducibility of what you can do. Uh, So I think coming up with good tests where you can actually see your improvement is key. One of the tests that I think is a really easy one, but it's really helpful in golf, is to actually try to make the same putt 10 times. Well, what we see is that if you're not a skilled golfer, there's going to be a lot of variability between the putts. So even when you're trying to do exactly the same putt, there's going to be a lot of variability. If we take an elite golfer, now the variability is going to be much more tight. And in fact, we found a very, very high correlation between the variability when you're trying to do the same thing suggesting here that what you need to work on is that reproducibility which is a little bit different from a lot of golfers who focus in on just you know hitting the ball hard and stuff like that wow it really is i I hate to keep using the golf metaphor but it's one i understand and i think many people understand it i wanted to ask you more because i really am fascinated by this this mental aspect have you ever heard of carol dweck are you familiar with like the fixed versus growth mindset by chance Yes, yes, I'm. I, I actually have met her several times. <laughs> I figured. Uh, I just. I didn't want to assume. <laughs> right. You know. I feel like that would play a a large role in your work, and this idea that, I mean, what you're suggesting is to constantly fail. I mean, every time you learn something new, the first hours, hundreds of hours, whatever it might be, of practice you won't be that good. And that is not fun. Do do you see that a lot? Does that make sense in your industry? Right. But but I think by setting now appropriate goals, uh, you are basically be able to regulate, you know, uh, your success rate. And I think with children and, and, and especially before you get that deep commitment, you don't want to have too much failure, but by adjusting now the goals. So, if you're just trying to increase your reproducibility so you can actually see that the circle gets, you know, an inch 
uh, a kind of shorter, and you can actually measure that. And I think charting your improvement might be another way in which you can actually objectify so you can really see, although you're not where you want to be, you're actually getting closer. There you go. I mean, and that's why I have the experts on the show, because it's the things you say, right? People will hear it and be like, oh, that makes sense. It's not that it's this mind blowing thing, but we I don't I can't speak for everyone. I don't do that. Right. I just say I'll put in work on this and get better. And I if you set those call them micro goals, you will continue to maintain the enthusiasm, which at the end of the day is what you're going to need to get through it. As opposed to what Carol says is, you know, if you just believe that anytime you do something and you don't kind of succeed, um, then it's essentially undermining your confidence. And that's when people stop. And that's the fixed mindset. Right. And, and, and I think you really do need to have Carol's view here that you can change. What we're uh, sort of trying to add is that once you add a teacher who can actually point you to mm. a number of his or her students who actually went from the point where you're at to a point where you want to be and can actually chart, you know, basically how long it took. Because I think that's one of the problems today is that people want essentially to improve fast. They don't really want to chart out this long journey because I think once you do the journey, you're learning a lot about yourself. You get a lot of experiences I think you get increased confidence about what you can do, not just in that domain, but in other domains. And I believe that basically, you know, doing which a lot of people seems to be hoping for is that they are doing some training and then suddenly they will get really good. What we're finding is that that doesn't even happen with those people who some people think are talented. So by adjusting your expectations, I think... And, and, and really getting involved here in the process. And, and I think that's why if you start with motivation, and, and I often recommend that a parent spending time with a child gives them a sort of a training project that would extend both for the parent and the child. And it basically allows them now to work together. And, and I think that unique motivational experience of actually having something shared will now help and, and in some ways allow both of them to mutually kind of support each other in improving. And I believe that the motivation that you have when you start is going to be different from when you're intermediate. And when you get to the elite levels, you're basically, the motivation is also something that has changed throughout your journey. And, and, and by looking at that journey as something exciting where you really don't know what's going to happen when you get a little further along, I think that introduces a viewpoint that we're trying to promote. This has been such a great conversation. And I have some notes written down that I've almost, as we've been talking, that I almost completely forgot about because I got engrossed in it. But I, I, I want to cover them because I feel like it'd be a disservice if we don't. You've used this phrase full concentration a few times. Could you explain what that means, how that differs from maybe the how the amateur goes about things? Well, I, I think many amateurs, they're just doing. And, and I think there is this tendency of wanting not or to kind of reduce your effort level. 
So you can kind of automate habits. What we find the expert is doing is kind of being more, you know, fully attentive to what is really happening. And if you want to, you know, basically do the very best that you can do in order to stretch your ability, basically that is what, what I would kind of describe as full concentration, where you're really attentive to what you're trying to do and you're fully aware of all the different factors. Because even if you don't succeed, paying attention to what the factors were would then allow you to make adjustments. So next time when you're trying again, uh, you will be more successful. Yeah, it's it's. I keep thinking about with that this kind of uh, full concentration and training, what it does. I recently listened to a conversation, it was a podcast, with a, a former chess champion. His name's Josh Waitskin. And um, he talked about how he got so mentally, he was so well-trained mentally uh, playing chess that even though he wouldn't know if he was doing something wrong or if his his, you know, was in the wrong place, I don't know things on the chessboard, um, his body and his mind would alert him to something being wrong. You know what I mean? Like he could feel it in those neurons that have seen so much that although consciously he didn't quite know at that moment, he knew, okay, something's wrong. I have to investigate. And I just feel like so much of what you're talking about is, is both mental and physical and the fact that you train all of your body, right? Mind, body, spirits, all whatever to to um to notice how to get better and and in case you screw up you can then kind of reproduce what you were trying to do. No, I, I think that happens. But what I've we've found when we ask people to sort of verbalize their thinking when they're trying to select moves and stuff like that, is that there's so much information that they can actually articulate. And and I believe that effective training, so if you make a mistake if you don't know how you actually made that mistake, it's going to be hard to correct. But if you have a plan for what you did do that actually uh, didn't allow you to kind of see certain things, then you can actually make adjustments to that. And I believe that that's a really critical part in very effective learning that experts engage in. That's terrific. And so I know we're running out of time here. If to, to sum it up a little bit, you would say, uh, you know, a, a good coach or teacher is imperative. You would say uh, in selecting that teacher, maybe take a look at have they helped others go from where you are to where you want to be. Get an idea of that time frame. Set kind of smaller goals that keep you motivated uh, you know, I feel like those are the meaningful takeaways that people can get next steps to start improving. Is there anything I'm, I'm wrong on there or some, some really critical areas that I left out? Well, I, I think it's perfect. I mean, the only thing I would add is, you know, that if you're an adult, uh, thinking about what really motivates you and then actually try to use that motivation as a starting point uh, because you are going to be tested even if the teacher will be able to help you through any kind of problems. So making that contact with the things that really motivates you is going to be, I think, really important in order to assure success when you uh, basically start this long journey. That's terrific. Well, 
the new book is called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And Anders, I know you've given us so much great information on this call, but there is just uh, an incredible amount of information in that book and it's done in in stories and things you've seen and athletes and you know violinists um so to really let this sink in i'd recommend everybody you know get that book check it out it's really incredible you are kind of the father of of much of what we understand about deliberate practice and getting better um and so i just want to say that and also for those that are sitting there because i know there's thousands of you out there going this is great stuff Anders is going to put on a webinar for us in the near future. Um, it's going to be part of our mastermind group. So head on over to mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com to check that out. Anders, uh, this, you know, this chat, this interview, whatever you want to call it, was uh, everything and more than I thought it was going to be. I, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Again, as we mentioned, the book is Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, uh, people are going to gobble this up. Is there anywhere else? I know you're busy with this, this launch and everything. Is there anywhere else? Do you, do you write? Can people learn more once they churn through this book? Uh, are you on social? Anything like that where we can find you? Well, you know, we're working on a website uh, with my co-author, Robert Poole, uh, and we're unfortunately a little delayed with that. Uh, but basically, I, I guess people uh, can find me, <clears throat> uh, you know, because I... Uh, by searching Google me and, and finding my email here on 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 uh, basically Florida State uh, University mm-hmm. and the psych department. Uh, now, obviously, uh, it may take some time sometimes for me to answer, but I kind of try to answer, or at least I've at least in the past I've been able to <laughs> answer most people. I got a feeling now with this book and the work you're doing and everything, you might have to outsource some of that email reading just to let you know. I'm just <laughs> I'm just I'm just preparing you for what might happen within the next month. So <laughs> But anyway, I, I so enjoyed talking to you uh, and this was just one of those rewards here from you know, writing the book here that I get a chance to talk to you and I look forward to the webinar and maybe some follow-ups. Yeah, absolutely. We will do that. I, I would love to stay in touch with you. I'm going to leave you alone because I know you're busy, but um, you know, in the future, we'll do the webinar and we'll con- continue to connect. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, Anders. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. Uh, you too. Bye. All Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Anders Ericsson. Anders' book, Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. If you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please remember that you can help out Smart People Podcast at no cost to you by using our Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head over to iTunes, subscribe over there. Leave a review, a comment, a rating. It really does help out the show in more ways than you may know. If you'd like to reach out to the show, please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. I hope everybody's having a great week and I wanted to thank you for making Smart People Podcast part of your week. Your lives are busy, and we truly do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to all of the different content that we bring. As always, please make sure you head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, to see all great things that have come out in the past. We've got some great episodes coming up. 
and we will see you all next week. Thanks again to Connected Camps for sponsoring today's episode. This summer, Connected Camps is offering Summer of Minecraft camps for kids where they can learn all about Minecraft from coding and architecture to in-game engineering and game design. The camps can be done from home and provide kids with a safe online environment and access to experienced counselors. With five week-long summer Minecraft sessions, Connected Camps lets your kids have fun while learning to code. Enter offer code SMART25 at checkout to get 25% off. Visit ConnectedCamps.com and sign up using our offer code SMART25, that's smart two five to receive 25% off. Connected Camps. Connect. Code. Have fun. Have fun.